Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. As you know, this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Your source for independent, intelligent podcasts that smell faintly of leather and dark wood. Oh, hello. I didn't see you come in there. I was just sitting here by the fireplace, doing some light reading and enjoying the soothing melodies of McCluskey on my new pair of Studio Sweden headphones. Who are Studio Sweden? Well, my friend, I'm glad you asked. Because I have a script that I'm contractually obligated to read you explaining that very thing. <clears throat> Studio Sweden wants to revolutionize the way people see headphones as not just a tech device, but also an accessory. Currently, the headphones market can offer you one of two things, style or tech. Fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality, and high-tech varieties are bulky and not design-oriented. We want to bridge that gap. While emphasizing our modern Scandinavian design, we also provide a product that matches the quality of even the highest-rated headphones on the market for a fraction of the cost. They also provide worldwide shipping. Okay, that all sounds pretty good, but what kind of headphones does Studio sell? Well, they have three main models, and I'm going to tell you about one of them now. The Trey headphones are wireless in-ear models with wingtip for a secure fit, inspired by an active lifestyle. So, they, they fit in your ear, but they have sort of a shape that secures them inside your ear, so if you're running or something, then they don't fall out. The Trace sound signature is well-balanced, with each tone represented clearly for an even listening experience. Trey offers full sound transparency, meaning the user can still hear their surroundings without having to remove the headphones. You won't be caught off guard by unexpected street noise and conversation, even while listening to your favorite tunes. I should just also add that all their headphones are Bluetooth-enabled, they will pair quickly and easily to your uh, listening device, so check them out. They're great. My pair is the Regent, and it's great. The Trey, also good if you're into that kind of thing. All right, on with the show. Greetings. I am very surprised that you have not yet sent ahead the ship loaded with the victuals to Sterling with Benedict of Canterbury, as was agreed between us, and which you said was ready before I left. So I ask you, as you care for the honor and reputation of the king and his army, that as soon as you have read this letter, that you should send all the victuals that you have, such as flour, wine, and other things, and hasten the flour that is coming from Roxborough, and get the ale made that I have ordered, and send it on. And, if you have not got enough tunes, get canvas from the wardrobe and put the flour in it, as I instructed you, and do not neglect any of this in any way. Quote from a letter written by an anonymous clerk in the service of King Edward of England, 
As reprinted in Armies and Warfare in the Middle Ages, The English Experience by Michael Prestwich, and as read by Stephen Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Hi, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. This is episode 40. Warfare in the Middle Ages Part 3, The Actual War Bits. So, after the mind-bending psychedelic experience that was the last two episodes, in which war was not war and causes caused themselves, this episode we will finally come to something a bit more solid. To finish off this extended look at warfare in the Middle Ages, we will examine the kinds of troops who engaged in warfare, how they came to be so engaged, and how they all functioned together as an army. This last part will lead into a bonus episode that I have planned that will hopefully be up this month, or next, before we finally move on to talking about the peasantry. Sound good? Great. After about a dozen rewrites over the last few months, I think the best place to start here is with a look at the kinds of troops that made up the armies in the Middle Ages. Now, listening to the last few episodes, and indeed the popular conception of medieval warfare in general, you could be forgiven for thinking that medieval armies started and ended with knights. Indeed, as we've said, heavily armored noble cavalry formed the core of the medieval military, but as we will see, they were not alone. Contrary to popular conceptions, the medieval battlefield also had a significant place for non-noble light cavalry, infantry forces of commoners, and skilled siege technicians. Finally, no army in history of any size has been able to operate without logistical support, and given the importance of the frailties of armies in the Middle Ages in this area, uh, which I discussed last time out, I think it's important to address those who filled this role in the Middle Ages, namely the men and women of the army camp. All of these individuals came to the military life in different ways, but contributed greatly towards the proper functioning of the army. Let us begin today with the cavalry. As we've discussed at some length, the institution of the heavily armored noble cavalrymen was fundamental to the Middle Ages. This military caste combined a lifetime of training and experience with mobility and survivability on the battlefield. They were essential to the maintenance of law and order in the countryside, and made up most of the army when their lords set out on chevaussees. As I've mentioned, many battles in the early Middle Ages were fought entirely between cavalry armies, with the infantry either just not there, or the commanders of the armies not bothering to wait for them to show up. What is less clear is how important the noble part of the institution was at any given time. As I have mentioned in passing, deep identification of knighthood with nobility, and of nobility with a social class based on bloodlines, was something that developed over the course of this period. As the class consciousness of the nobility grew, the boundaries of who was in and who was out became more and more of a concern. Now, we don't have any evidence of commoners becoming dukes or anything like that, but there's a real case to be made that the knights in the early Middle Ages were defined by their equipment and their role in society rather than by their birth. Sources from the early years talk about cavalry arriving at the muster in terms of their male shirts, their good horses, and their shields. Later sources, by contrast, will make a note of soldiers being well-born. Over the course of the Middle Ages, there were also some changes in technology, both inside and outside the military, that gradually changed the relationship of the knights with the rest of the army. First, and this is one of those chicken-and-egg things, the armor worn by knights became more and more heavy as time went on. Knights initially were armed in the way you see on the Bayer Tapestry, a link in the show notes. A knight would just have a long gown made of chainmail, which had a slit in the front and back, and then the, sh the skirt was tied so that the mail wrapped around the legs so that the knight could ride a horse. 
This would all be worn over cotton padding, and topped with a fairly simple metal helmet. The knight would have a kite-shaped shield, and a spear, and a sword as a sidearm. Depending on the area and the time period, an outer cloth garment was sometimes worn over the outside of the chainmail as well. Over time, this standard equipment got more complex. The mail shirts became more fitted, and more and more layers of chainmail were added. Eventually, breastplates and other elements of plate armor were added to the picture. During the same time period, European society had stabilized and become more wealthy. So it's easy to see this as the nobles simply investing in more armor as they had more resources. But it's worth saying that even as the nobles got more wealthy, so too did at least some commoners, and at least some uncommon soldiers made the obvious leap to buying real arms and armor, and many historians postulate that there was something of an arms race between the knightly cavalry and the line infantry of the time. Podcast footnote. The knight in full plate armor, which is what you think of when someone says the word knight, was a really, really late presence on the battlefield. It wasn't actually until the 15th century that an army of knights in full plate armor made their debut in a battle in Italy that I'm not going to bother looking up. Of course, they were nigh unstoppable, but that is well outside of our chronology here. So when I say knights were incorporating some plate armor, I mean SOME plate armor. They started wearing breastplates over the upper part of the torso, and wearing plates over their shins and upper arms. Everything else was still being protected by chainmail. One thing that is worth discussing, but which I have not found good information on, was the prevalence of armor for the horses. Clearly, some knights did this, but just as clearly, it was absurdly expensive. My guess is that only the wealthiest knights did this, and that then these knights would sort of be put in the front line. This could help explain the need for the long and seemingly silly disputes about placements in places of honor and formations that we occasionally find in records of things like the Battle of Agincourt. On the other hand, it's at least possible that, like plate armor, armored horses were sort of a frilly thing that came out only really late in the progression of the time period. My personal feeling is that, unlike plate armor, armoring horses is probably something that happened earlier, but it was only the ultra-wealthy who did it. Just my feeling. End podcast footnote. One other sort of social factor that we need to put out there is that sometime between the years 900 and 1000, the soft horse collar made its debut in Europe. Now, stay with me. This collar allowed horses to be used in plowing fields, something that was a huge boost to the productivity of farming, but who cares about that? More importantly for our purposes today, horses were no longer exclusively used for war and transportation. As a result, the number of horses in Europe grew, which reduced their price and allowed special breeding programs. Think of it like this. In the early Middle Ages, the only point of having a horse was to use for fighting or moving around, at a time when most of the population were farmers who never went more than 20 miles from home, and who didn't fight. Owning a horse would be like owning an airplane or a boat. It's nice, most of us can appreciate that it might be fun or useful, but not something most of us do. But then the advent of the soft collar made it so you could use horses to feed your family. Now owning a horse would be like owning a car in modern society. It's sort of, you need one, or it's really good to have one. Suddenly the rich could afford to be picky about what kind of horse they used. Before, a knight might have been happy to drive a Corolla onto the battlefield, but suddenly he had the option to hold out for a Humvee. By the time you get to 1200 or 1300 or so, the sources suggest that many knights would not have been considered fully ready for war if they did not come to the muster with three horses. The big war horses were great in battle, but could be uncomfortable to ride on the regular, and anyway, you didn't want to show up for battle with a tired horse. So the knights would also bring a palfrey for riding, and then also just like a draft horse to carry their supplies, some of them also brought spare war horses. Since they now had a bunch of horses, they would also bring along a servant or two, usually a younger noble who was still learning the ropes, to help manage the horses, help them with their armor, look after the baggage, and in a pinch, help with the fighting. These servants came to be called squires. 
Podcast footnote. I'm just going to stick this tidbit in here since it doesn't really obviously fit elsewhere. Knights tended to come along with a few non-noble servants as well, who could also be expected to take up arms in the field if the need arose. This became a basic unit of organization for many armies and mercenary groups in the Middle Ages. Since this troop of five or more men was organized around servicing the knight, this unit became known as a lance. So if you ever read it in a chronicle about an army of a hundred lances showing up for a battle in such and such a place, what they mean is not just that a hundred knights showed up, although yes, that, but then these knights also came with a slightly larger number of mounted squires and a body of dismounted non-noble infantry. In camp, the men in the lance would see to the needs of themselves and their lord. In battle, we think that at least some of the men would be split up amongst a couple of different fighting forces and logistical roles. Some served... Some saw to the logistical needs of their lord, bringing up spare lances and fresh horses. Some actually would fight as light cavalry or as infantry, etc. This is one of the earliest examples of the kind of combined arms organization of medieval armies that I'm going to uh, refer to again a little bit later in the episode. In practice, of course, the lance was much less standardized and was decidedly ad hoc, and the administrative apparatus of the time doesn't really allow us to know that much about what numbers they actually attained in practice, or, and this is the frustrating bit, how they actually behaved as a unit. Were they coordinated? Was the knight, like, coordinating with the people who were dismounted? Or did they all just go their separate ways and then come together back in camp? While we know sort of a maddeningly small amount of how the lances actually functioned, the evidence this shows is really interesting. We see, at a fairly early stage, an understood need to balance the proportions of the different elements of the army, even at a time when, if you read the chronicles, they aren't fighting as a combined arms unit. We'll get back to this more later. End podcast footnote. At the same time that the equipment of the knights was becoming fairly complex, you start seeing in the record a new kind of non-nobles cavalry soldier. They had different names all across Europe, but they were called sergeants in France, and that's what I'm going to call them here. These sergeants were light cavalry, armored only with some chainmail. They served to bulk out the numbers of the cavalry, engage in raiding and scouting, and often served to keep law and order in the countryside when the knights were otherwise engaged. Ultimately, the sergeants would move into the ranks of the lower nobility, but that would not happen until much later. There are a few ways of putting all this stuff together that I've been talking about. One way is the following. All these new things, the plate armor and the spare horses, would have been super expensive. At the same time, social forces were aligning to separate nobles from non-nobles and keep commoners from becoming nobles. So the pool of people who could be a knight was restricted, even as the cost skyrocketed. The baleful influence of the Black Death is also noted as a factor here, but all of this adds up to manpower needs were stable or growing, and the available pool of knights was stable or shrinking. And so we see for the first time the use of non-noble horsemen to bulk out the numbers of the cavalry arm. That's one interpretation. The interesting thing to me is this. Were these guys really new on the battlefield, or was there just now a need to have a name for them? We see in the sources for the early Middle Ages some evidence for a lot of different kinds of people in the cavalry. Certainly I can't think of anyone talking about peasants per se in the cavalry, but you see a lot of landless mercenaries in the early days, and remember all those early knights were just wearing chainmail, just like the sergeants later on. But by the High Middle Ages, suddenly there's a social need to distinguish knights from everyone else, and the knights are choosing to use more expensive equipment, even as chainmail and more common horses of the earlier times were suddenly becoming affordable. 
The most commonly accepted story on this is that these were new kinds of soldiers being recruited because of new circumstances, and the need to bulk out the army numbers on the cheap. I'm not really totally convinced. You could easily read it that the sergeants had always been there, wearing their chainmail and riding their perfectly normal horses, but now the real nobles had a newfound need to mark themselves out as special. Of course, commanders weren't going to bench perfectly good soldiers just because they didn't show up with the coolest gear and a matching bloodline. So all of a sudden we find a new class of light cavalry to put people in who, last week, were maybe just knights. This is a reading I haven't really found in the literature, so maybe I'm missing something, but it seems plausible. Anyway. One last group to discuss here really quickly before we move on. Towards the end of the High Middle Ages... As infantry began to return to prominence on the battlefield, armies started using mounted infantrymen. It's a little bit out of our time, but as the name implies, the role of these guys was to try to keep up with the cavalry on raids, but then, if the cavalry ran into a real army, they would have infantry with them, and that would allow them more tactical flexibility if an opportunity arose to engage in battle. These guys were always non-noble, and we'll get into how infantrymen were recruited in a little bit. The big takeaway from this is that, like the nobility itself, the cavalry was not monolithic, and at the borderlines, things got fuzzy. Even within the knightly class, there were probably some variety in the amount of armor worn, with the ultra-rich showing up with some plate armor and many, many layers of chainmail, and maybe even armoring their horses. On the other end of the scale, nobles who had not yet come of age served as squires, who often had duties to act as servants, but who could also act as light or medium cavalry if the need arose, and they probably just wore chainmail. And finally, there's the light cavalry, often non-noble, who were lightly armed and mounted. Within the cavalry arm, most nobles would show up due to their feudal obligations, but any of the men we just described could be mercenaries, something that would become more important as time went on. The mounted infantry were not noble and were recruited in a system that existed somewhat outside the feudal institutions of the time, which we'll get back to. For those who were feudal levies, that is to say the men who showed up to do their feudal obligations, we can say a few things about their capabilities and characteristics as soldiers. One thing I would like to get out of the way is the idea that the armor was so heavy that they could not stand up by themselves due to the weight, or that they were too proud to fight dismounted. These are myths from a later era. First, the armor thing. Even when, in later years, full suits of plate armor became the norm, no knight would consent to wear armor that made them so completely helpless in battle. Yes, the suits could be heavy, but the weight was distributed around the body. You maybe wouldn't want to go for a stroll in a swamp, but look, at the end of the day, if you can't stand up, how can you defend yourself if you get unhorsed? Going into battle like that would be suicide. Knights actually took pride in their ability to do things, like do cartwheels in full armor. Of course, in the time period we're talking about, armor was even less cumbersome, being mostly made of chainmail. In terms of their pridefulness, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that the Knights of the Middle Ages weren't a headstrong and prideful bunch, but this thing about fighting dismounted is just untrue. Knights participated in the storming of castles. You simply can't do that from a horse. I'm sorry, but horses can't climb siege towers. They can't get through breaches which are full of rubble. They don't go through tunnels. On the open field, the knights preferred to stay mounted, but that was from the view that horsemen were more valuable tactically. When battlefield conditions made fighting as infantry preferable, such as at the Battle of Tours or the Battle of Agincourt, the knights of the Middle Ages did not show any hesitation in dismounting. They were trained to do so. It was part of the regimen that they got as squires. Now, on to how they were actually used and behaved on the battlefield. The equipment of the knights made them very good as shock troops, capable of using mobility to find weak points and then charging in. Their armor made it easier to survive in close combat, and their lances made it easier to move into gaps at full speed. 
Of course, even if a cavalry charge could be easily stopped by a disciplined and compact infantry formation, doing so would have required the existence of disciplined and compact formations of infantry on the medieval battlefield. Knights and other horsemen of the time tended to be experienced warriors, but that comes with a few strong caveats. Their experience was often limited, as we discussed last time, to small raids and sieges. Compounding this, their training had a very limited theoretical component, so they often didn't learn about strategies and tactics outside of sitting around the mead hall listening to songs and stories. Finally, discipline was varied. In theory, their loyalty to the Lord meant that they would follow his every command, but the basic command structure of these forces would be that the vassals followed their lords, who followed their lords, and so on. This created a pretty serviceable command hierarchy for what we might call small unit actions. But they also had a limited experience in serving together as a unit. Feudal obligation did not require regular exercises, standardized training, or even long periods of service. Generally, knights would just be required to serve for one campaign season, or just a few months, and then they would go home. And as we've discussed at length, there was a lot of power in the hands of individual knights. As much as they were supposedly obligated to show up, they were often able to wiggle out of this if they wanted to. Even if they did show up, they could simply decide that it wasn't worth it and head home, often without consequences. If their lord didn't like it, they would be welcome to come take the knight's land away by force, using an army of other knights. Have fun storming the castle. The result was something like a mixture of what we might expect from a professional army and a force of militia. Their service was short, discipline was poor, and the commander had to keep morale up or everyone would just leave. In battle, they would often disobey orders and impetuously charge or run away, and their vision could be really limited. On the other hand, they were, as individuals, well-trained in the martial skills of their day, and they were by and large not scared of bloodshed, which is a really important point. This made them capable of some really amazing things on a person-to-person -person basis. In small unit actions, they really shone, and the records are full of stories of castles being successfully taken based on the initiative of a small group of knights. The flip side of this is, of course, that their lack of experience in large groups and their lack of discipline meant that they were always using their individual initiative, which could get armies in serious trouble. Mercenaries could make up for a lot of these shortcomings. They could be more disciplined, since their terms of service could be for however long the money keeps coming in, and because they often organized themselves into units to allow for more efficient negotiations, and these units could stay together through multiple conflicts. On the other hand, they were expensive, and their loyalty was suspect. I should say that it was fairly rare for mercenaries to turn on their masters in battle, something which was actually not uncommon for regular knights. That said, it was fairly common for mercenaries to just take off when their pay stopped, and when that happened, the line between a mercenary and a bandit became paper thin. If no one was paying the bills, that meant food could be hard to buy, but who needs to buy food when you're a fully armed knight in a countryside full of peasantry when the knights are off at war? The records are full of mercenaries taking off, finding a nice patch of land, and taking a castle before anyone knew they were in the area. Once so ensconced, the powers that be often just had to acknowledge their claims to the land by right of conquest. As a result, mercenaries could have a really serious, destabilizing influence on an area if wars lasted more than a short period. As more and more men were drawn into an area, their loyalties could drift between the two sides of the conflict. But more critically, such regions often became rife with banditry, and stripped of resources and basically just ungovernable. 
With the normal lords off fighting a war, with armies marching this way and that, extracting taxes, and gangs of former mercenaries out and out stealing what was left, many peasant communities in these areas ended up being essentially forced into revolt. And then, when such revolts were inevitably crushed, the countryside would be denuded of population and left a vacant wasteland. Mercenaries were not very popular with the church or the peasantry in the Middle Ages. On to the infantry. Contrary to the popular narrative of the era, infantry always had a role in medieval warfare. As we've mentioned maybe a few times, the Germanic armies of the migration period were mostly infantry-based, and right through the Carolingian Empire, warfare was largely done on foot. In this period, the kings would have the right to call up some portion of the free peasantry to arms. We call this a peasant levy. As time went on, the number of free peasants declined, for reasons we will get into in a later episode when we focus more on the peasantry, and... Because they were now not free, they were insulated from the king's command. That said, the nobility still could and did call up a levy of their peasants, but ultimately the economic incentives of the time were such that the nobles wanted to keep the peasants on the land farming. This would ensure that the noble would get more wealth from the land. With the peasants thus unavailable, fighting was done increasingly by the nobles themselves. Still, these peasant levies are the starting point of infantry in the Middle Ages, so let's take a minute to get to know them. Though eventually looked down upon by the knights of later periods, we do see examples of peasant levies performing real service on battlefields through the early Middle Ages. Famously, the initial defeat of the Vikings in England by Alfred the Great relied heavily on the Ferd, an organized system of peasant levies who gained discipline and experience over decades of constant warfare. Like the knights, these early peasant warriors usually had to show up with some equipment and supplies, though of course the bar was a bit lower. Depending on the place and time, they would be expected to come with some food and some kind of a cheap weapon. The most basic equipment would be a spear and a shield. Sometimes an axe would be acceptable. All these are simple enough tools that a village blacksmith could make them, especially since most shields of the time were actually made of wood. So much we can gather from the law books of the early Middle Ages. Now, the documentary and archaeological evidence, which is admittedly scanty, tells a slightly different story. Only slightly, but in an important way. What we learn is that most peasant soldiers probably didn't rely, at least exclusively, on the spear and the shield as their main weapons. Now you see, your average peasant, while he may not have had a big fancy sword or real armor, and he may have had no military training whatsoever, probably spent a fairly huge portion of his life either in the woods trying to kill something that he could eat, or in the meadows trying to kill things that were trying to eat his sheep. So the story we get from the earliest part of the Middle Ages is of peasant infantry forces composed of mixed groups of some people holding spears and shields, but then a lot of people holding javelins, slings, and hunting bows. Most of these would not have seriously injured a knight in mail, but they could injure the knight's horse, and anyway, no one wants to walk across a field getting shot at. When combined with the spear-wielding peasants, and if they were well-led, these infantry forces were able to hold their own against all kinds of opponents, even cavalry forces. Over time, however, these forces were called up less and less, probably as much for economic and social reasons as for military ones. But as they were called up less, the peasants had less and less institutional experience in warfare, which made them less reliable on the battlefield. When combined with the rising sense of class consciousness amongst the nobility, and the fact that the nobility literally ruled the peasantry, the knightly classes came to view infantry with contempt and minimized their battlefield role. There's a fair amount of evidence that by the year 1000, peasant levies were not really being called upon for service in open battle. But that's not to say that the infantry left the battlefield entirely. First of all, peasant levies probably continued to be important for some of the more menial tasks in the army. 
To some extent, they might serve as castle garrisons, but they would definitely be required to do things like cart food around for the local lord, something that could be important in the logistical support of the army. This was always massively unpopular, which is how we hear about it in court records. Areas with strong traditions of forestry could also be called upon to act as skirmishers and archers as well, though they would increasingly not be expected to hold a line by themselves. The big shift that happened was that the feudal armies moved from a system of what we might call conscription, where the peasants have to show up with some equipment, to a system of recruitment, where soldiers show up for service in return for the promise of pay. This probably seems like an obvious way to create an army to us, but given the economic and social structure of the Middle Ages, a few things had to shift for this to occur. The first important point is that the rise of castles and constant warfare presented challenges with which, as we discussed last time out, the traditional military systems of the time could just not cope. Undisciplined peasant levies with low morale were not really ideal on the open battlefield, but in a siege they were basically useless. Knights were not much better, but at least a dismounted knight could charge into an opening in the castle's defenses and survive with all that armor. A peasant armed with nothing but a pitchfork, not so much. And while having ranged infantry could theoretically be useful in harassing the defenders of the castle, the increasing height of castle walls made the simple hunting tools of most peasants fairly superfluous. But as the Middle Ages progressed, a new force began to emerge in Europe. We will get into the whys and wherefores in upcoming episodes. But as Europe settled down, the population in cities and towns began to recover from the low points of the early Middle Ages. These new urban centers created a lot of the prerequisites for a recruitment-based military. Large pools of population, an expanding, money-driven economy, the creation of specialists in things like armor production, which helped drive down the prices of equipment. The expanding trade networks of the cities also helped to foster the rebirth of a very special piece of technology, the crossbow. The crossbow originated in the ancient world, but does not make a big splash in the record during the Roman Empire. In all likelihood, it was one of the many kinds of siege weapons deployed by the armies of the empire in both defensive and offensive capabilities. Knowledge of their use in some capacity seems to have survived the fall of the empire and re-emerged across the continent amongst the peasantry as a hunting tool. For most peasants, the crossbow was just a form of the hunting bow that was just a little bit easier to use. The development of this technology was gradual, and, because it was not done by the knights or the clerics, happens off-screen as far as most of the records of the era are concerned. Indeed, one of the first times we even really hear about the crossbow, at least in terms of the records of the great and the good, is in the context of the Second Lateran Council of 1139, which was trying to ban the things. By that point, however, the crossbow had become something much more than a simple hunting bow on a stick. The crossbow took many forms and had a range of capabilities, but the basics are that the crossbow is, you know, a bow, the archy thing with the string, attached horizontally across a stock, so parallel with the ground, which is placed up against the shoulder of the user. The string would be drawn to a catch, which would store the potential power of the draw until the user placed an arrow against the string, took careful aim, and fired using a trigger of some kind to release the catch. Separating these steps into different parts meant that the physics of the thing could be made entirely insane. By 1100, when the Lateran Council tried to ban it, it's likely that most military-grade crossbows, at a minimum, used steel rather than wood to make the bow. Many also used fully steel arrows, and even steel cables to string the bow. Often the force required to draw one of these contraptions was so intense that a complex system of pulleys and winches was needed, meaning that readying a crossbow to fire could take quite a long time. But once the bow was fired, you really didn't want to be on the wrong end of it. The arrows fired from a crossbow could reliably pierce chainmail, at range, and some of the more crazy kinds of crossbow could pierce shields and even plate armor from a close distance. 
The practical use of a weapon that could only be fired once or twice a minute in the context of an open battlefield might seem questionable. Indeed, the battlefield record of crossbowmen was... mixed. But again, we have to understand that in the Middle Ages, conventional military engagements on an open battlefield were fairly rare, and it isn't here that the crossbow developed, and indeed, it wasn't here that the crossbow shone. Instead, let's go back to the cities. In the cities, there were merchants. Merchants who wanted to trade goods over long distances. Unfortunately, in the Middle Ages, the vast expanses between towns were often full of bandits, many of whom were in league with the local lords. The bandits would loot merchant caravans and give the lord a cut of the profits to look the other way. So the merchants needed a way to protect their wares, and the nobility probably weren't a great source of protection. So the merchants hired local men in the cities to show up with, you know, whatever weapons they had handy at good rates of pay, so security guards. These men would ride in the carts of goods and try to fight off the attackers. In this context, the crossbow became invaluable. It could hold its draw for an extended period, and was easy to aim quickly, so you could just draw it at the beginning of the day and wait around. Someone with a very limited training could use it, and when they fired, they had a high probability of killing or at least unhorsing an attacking bandit. Of course, as the crossbows developed into completely absurd little studies in the outer limits of conventional physics, having a bunch of guys with crossbows on your caravan really gave bandits something to think about when picking their targets. Maybe we skip this one, boys. Maybe we wait and mug the next priest that comes by on pilgrimage. So then it turns out that the same attributes that made crossbows so great for security guards also made them really valuable in sieges. For the defenders, a crossbow was a great way to make up for the uneven training of the peasant and noble garrison troops. And again, you're in a castle. It doesn't matter if you take a long time to load. No one's going to come stab you because they're at the bottom of the wall. The use of the crossbow in defensive fortifications was actually one of the key factors behind the success of the Northern Crusades in the Baltic, which I've talked about a little bit and I'm going to come back to later. For the attackers in a siege, the crossbow was even more vital. No matter what siege tactic was being used, and we'll be discussing several in a few minutes, it was important to harass the defenders. In this, the crossbow was just more useful than a simple bow. Crossbows had the range and the hitting power to reach the defenders on the top of the walls. Again, in a siege context, it didn't matter that there was a long reload time. The attackers would bring field defenses that they could set up to allow them to shoot from cover, at which point they could take their time in reloading, aiming, and firing. Most famously, the pavese was a huge, thick wooden shield that could cover the entire body of a person who was more or less standing up, and then it could be moved from spot to spot, placed on the ground, and used as cover for the crossbowmen. Podcast footnote. Please don't ask me about longbows and how they, they compared in terms of range and power. You won't like me if I talk about longbows. End podcast footnote. So by the time we hear about crossbows in the records, there was probably already a fairly big pool of these guys in the cities and bigger towns who made a living as security guards for merchant caravans and who had transferable skills that lords wanted for sieges, the big tricky problem of medieval warfare. As an added bonus, most crossbowmen seemed to have acquired some kind of armor. Given that the price of armor was dropping in the urban centers, and these guys made their living fighting evil bandits, this probably shouldn't be a surprise. Slightly more surprising might be that these crossbowmen soon organized themselves into professional crossbow guilds in many cities. We'll get into guilds more in a few episodes, but these organizations set professional standards, arranged apprenticeships and training, they even created uniforms. While many considered the crossbowmen from Italy and Spain to be the best, every city and town in Europe 
basically had their own, initially just to fulfill the needs of these trade caravans, but soon also to serve the needs of the local nobility in their ongoing wars. As I sort of referenced before, crossbowmen weren't the only kinds of soldiers that were becoming available in the new urban centers. Merchants hired many kinds of guards. Like I said, they'd hire basically anyone who'd show up with a weapon. And this allowed these men to gain some combat experience, some training, and most importantly, the cash needed to buy real equipment. The new pool of recruitable soldiers therefore also included men who expected to fight hand-to-hand with spears and swords. In some cases, these men were actually members of the crossbowmen guilds, where they served as the assistants of the crossbowmen. In this arrangement, the assistant would be armed with a spear and then the pavés. The pavés would be planted to act as cover, and the assistant would stand behind it, reloading spare crossbows for the main guy. If they were attacked, the assistant could grab up his spear and help defend the crossbowmen hand-to-hand. This creation of mixed hand-to-hand and ranged infantry units would have a long-lasting influence, and it's interesting in its similarity to the rides of the lance system around the same time, which I mentioned in a podcast footnote earlier. Just to drive the point home that these developments were probably in some ways linked, in some armies, crossbowmen were accorded the same rank in the field as a knight, which is interesting, because they probably weren't nobles. Before we get into how all this translated onto the battlefield, I just want to take a moment to tie up a few threads that I just brought up, because this is all going to be super important later down the line. These troops were being recruited into armies in return for pay, and had formed themselves into guilds. Without getting into too much of a philosophical rabbit hole, the distinction between these infantrymen and mercenaries is basically paper thin. Remember, we're talking about a time period when there aren't really organized states per se. In modern times, The main difference between a soldier and a mercenary is that a client other than one's own country is the client of a mercenary. That's sort of an anachronism here. No one has countries. And yet the chroniclers of the time do draw a distinction between mercenaries and regular soldiers, often to the detriment of the former. I suppose the difference was down to a lord recruiting in their own territory versus sending agents out to recruit, but in a period where a lord's holdings were often in name only and were usually non-contiguous, the distinction seems difficult to parse. One of the real issues may actually tie back to that attempted ban on crossbows. That ban was justified by the ability of a commoner to kill a noble, which was something that just should not be allowed. So, in all likelihood, some of the distaste for mercenaries may have had as much to do with the fact that a lot of mercenaries were non-noble crossbowmen who were killing nobles. That said, mercenaries, even the non-noble ones, did tend to be hard on the peasantry especially once their units started to incorporate noble-born cavalry contingents of the type I discussed before. So, genuine humanitarian concerns should not be entirely discounted. The key takeaway is that the infantry of this period were increasingly being recruited, based on the promise of cash, and many were out-and-out mercenaries, and they were increasingly well-armed and organized into coherent units. They were increasingly useful in sieges, which was probably the main reason they were recruited, and they were also fairly expensive. That leaves us with the question of how the infantry were used on the battlefield. In short, and despite all this lead-up, and some very interesting evidence, the infantry don't seem to make a really clear major contribution to winning a battle on the field in Europe before 1302. They were used in sieges, but we don't have any records of them winning a battle. In 1302, a bunch of club-wielding Belgian militiamen beat an army of French knights to death in a swamp at the Battle of Courtrai, and this is often credited as the moment when urban infantry of Europe really came into their own. The reality is a little bit more complex, and the victory of Courtrai didn't really come out of nowhere, and it didn't change things overnight. But to explain why, I need to go through some intro-level military tactical theory. 1. Cavalry are good at attacking and bad at defending. 
cavalry are mobile, they can find and exploit weak spots, and the shock of their charge can panic people into running away. That said, if the horses are static, they don't have the advantage of the charge, and it can be really awkward to fight from horseback. Infantry equipped to fight hand-to-hand -hand are good at defending, and bad at attacking. Infantry can form into big, compact masses that are impossible to move. They are encouraged by being part of a group. And horses won't charge into solid objects, especially pointy ones. Infantry armed with spears, in particular, are very hard to move on the battlefield so long as they maintain good order and do not panic. On the other hand, they don't move very fast. So, attacking things can be kind of hard. Doing so often breaks up the formation, creating vulnerabilities that can be exploited. Only the most disciplined infantry soldiers can attack. 3. Ranged infantry can attack people who are far away and have better range than mounted bowmen, but aren't as good at defending as hand-to-hand -hand infantry. So, a guy with a bow and arrow can shoot someone further away than a guy with a spear. A guy who is standing with a bow and arrow can be more accurate and shoot further away than a guy who is on a horse with a bow and arrow, although that guy can move around a lot faster. Also, a guy who is standing on the ground can use a crossbow, which has got more range than a guy with a bow and arrow on a horse. Finally, a bow or a crossbow that does not have an arrow in it is not very useful in hurting people. If the archers have swords and shields and are disciplined enough to form up into a compact mass, they can form a shield wall and they can sometimes still take a cavalry charge, but this isn't ideal and that's a lot of complicated stuff. So, in an ideal battle, the hand-to-hand -hand infantry would be used to protect the ranged infantry from the cavalry. The ranged infantry would be used to wear down an enemy army, and the cavalry would, like, shelter behind the infantry and then move out around the side to make charges, and then pull back to regroup and charge again. So much for the military theory. The question is, do we see this in the records? In practice, for most of the Middle Ages, it's hard to find examples of this being done in the Chronicles. Mostly, you see the cavalry having cavalry battles on the field, and the infantry are sort of there, uh, but mostly the infantry come out from the shadows for sieges, with one or two major exceptions. These tactics that I've just described are more or less exactly the tactics that get used in the First and Third Levantine Crusades. In the Crusades, the armies of Europe faced mounted archers, horse archers who could ride circles around European armies, and often in the Crusade they were able to make use of the poor discipline of their opponents to tempt them out into these unwise charges, cut them off, and pepper them with arrows until they were all dead. But there were a few key battles in the First and Third Crusades, notably the battles of Dorylaeum and the Battle of Arsuf, where we see European infantry being used to advantage in a way that strongly foreshadowed what we would see after the Battle of Courtrai. In these battles, the heavily armored, edged weapon infantry bore the brunt of the attacks. The chronicles report that they looked like hedgehogs as they marched, having been shot full of arrows. Despite this harassment, their armor kept them from being wounded, and their presence as edged weapon infantrymen in good order that, that kept the horse archers from charging in with swords. The ranged infantry, mostly armed with crossbows, served further to keep the horse archers at bay. When the horse archers would come in to shoot their arrows, the infantry would shoot back with crossbows, which gave them something to think about at the very least. The range of the crossbowmen meant that they could shoot the horse archers before the horse archers could shoot them. This helped wear down the attackers. Finally, at critical moments, the heavy cavalry forces which had been sheltering behind the infantry were able to counterattack the attacking horse archers, catch them unprepared, killing many and scattering the rest. What is interesting about this evidence is that we don't really see similar tactics being used to win battles in Europe. And usually you don't see tactics just sort of emerge out of nowhere. Because these tactics strongly foreshadowed behavior on the battlefield later on, this is an interesting point that's worth thinking about. And yet the Crusades were definitely an outlier. 
is a few potential reasons for this. As we discussed last time, grand campaigns of conquest were exceedingly rare in the Middle Ages, and there were no campaigns grander than those of the First and Third Crusades. The armies were larger, the leadership and soldiers were more experienced and well-armed, and it's worth pointing out, most battles in the Middle Ages did not pit European armies against Turkish steppe tribes, so there's a lot of outliers here. Still, the evidence we have is of commanders who knew how to use the troops at their disposal and did so remarkably well. This suggests that even if domestic wars were not on the scale of the battles in the Levant, this kind of combined arms deployment of troops was not entirely alien. And yet mostly what we see being done in the records is that the infantry were mostly in sieges and were held back for the most part in open battle. It may be that the developing power of the infantry was simply not recognized until the Crusades and someone had a brilliant strike of genius uh, as they were marching to the Holy Land. I think it's more likely, given the spotty record-keeping of the time, that the role of infantry was simply downplayed in the Chronicles due to the class biases of the literati or because some battles were simply not recorded. We do know that the commanders of the Middle Ages, at least the literate ones, had access to some old Roman military manuals, so that may have been a source of ideas that was then you know, deployed in the Crusades, but I think some experimentation had to have happened before this. So just to wrap this all together, infantry in the early and high Middle Ages mostly consisted of light infantry who used ranged weapons. As the battlefield value of these troops declined, their importance of siege warfare grew, and so in many ways the infantry we see in the Middle Ages were actually siege specialists. The cavalry looked down on them, and they may or may not have been able to stand up on the battlefield, but they seemed to have been very good at what they were paid to do, which was shoot arrows into and out of castles, defend the baggage, and act as garrisons. Peasant levies remained as a source of raw manpower throughout the Middle Ages, but their use as actual soldiers was probably uh, nearly gone by 1,000 or so. Instead, soldiers would be recruited for pay, either as individuals or as part of organized guilds that signed up as a group. By 1300, the infantrymen of Europe had the equipment and the institutional capacity to completely change the way war was waged, but the process had not begun quite yet. This leads us to our final group of what we might call soldiers in the army of the Middle Ages, the siege technicians. Sieges were, as I mentioned last time, the second most common kind of military activity. Castles were a fairly ubiquitous element of the medieval landscape, and as we have discussed, they were the main military obstacle in the way of a lord conquering a territory. Castles ranged in size and complexity based on the time period and the resources of the defending lord, but in general they made use of some basic fortification principles that humans have known since the dawn of civilization. Being high up makes your arrows and thrown projectiles go further, and also makes it hard to stab you. Walls make it so attackers can't get to what you're defending, so surrounding your position with high walls is a good idea. You can also make up for a lack of engineering height by building moats, which are ditches, that make it so that the attacker, who is standing at the bottom of the moat, is even further down from the top of the wall than if he were standing at ground level. As an added bonus, you can fill moats with water, which makes things really tricky. Towers stand out from the wall, allowing defenders to cover larger portions of the wall than if they were standing in one place, and they can also shoot people in the back. Ideally, you want somewhere to fall back to if your wall is breached, so you either make concentric lines of fortification, or you make it so that your castle is more likely to be attacked from one direction and then make multiple obstacles in that direction. Long story short, you make a building that makes it really easy for the defenders to harass the attackers without taking casualties. And for just as long as people have been building fortifications, there have been other people trying to kill people in fortifications. And as with the building of castles, the basic principles of sieges used in the Middle Ages come from the ancient world and have been known for thousands of years. An attacker can go over, through, or under a wall. 
This can be done cheaply, which is more likely to be unpleasant, or with increasing levels of expense that make things slightly less unpleasant. The most obvious way to go over a fortification is using ladders. This is horrible, and a dangerous thing to do if there is anyone to oppose you, as the defenders tend to do things like shoot you with arrows, or, possibly even worse, knock over the ladder. Still, if you take a castle by surprise, or if you really massively outnumber the defenders, maybe you can just swarm up the walls and pull it off. A less terrifying option would be the construction of a siege tower. Built of wood and covered with some sort of fireproof material, the towers could be rolled up to the walls, allowing attackers with bows to clear the walls, and then attackers with swords or spears to climb up in relative safety before jumping onto the wall. And then, you know, they can't be knocked over, so that's a plus. Of course, if there's a moat of any kind, this becomes tricky. And no material is completely fireproof, uh, or getting shot with a catapult-proof, and this could make things in Sage Towers fairly tense. Going through a wall is time-tested, at the most basic level. I get a bunch of my friends together, and we push through the gate of the castle before it's closed. Then, operating in my own particular idiom, I storm up into the keep, rescue the princess, and fight my way out. This sounds absurd, but it's actually one of the most common ways that castles were taken. It's worth saying that the morale of castle garrisons was not always particularly high, and discipline was not always very good. Assuming everyone in the castle was awake and had closed the gate, me and my buddies can go with plan B. The gate's closed, so we get out some picks, and we stand there and hack at the wall until there is a hole. As with the ladders, this is a pretty bad idea if there's anyone inside other than the guy who closed the gate. So to prevent oneself and one's friends from being shot at to death, many attackers of castles built a variety of increasingly sophisticated contraptions called cats. Don't ask where the name comes from, no one knows. Basically, it's a shed covered with fireproof materials that can be moved up to the wall. At the most basic level, it's just shelter for the guys with picks, and there weren't even wheels, they just picked it up and ran with it. At the most sophisticated level, the cat would be mounted on wheels, and there would be a battering ram or a drill to speed up the creation of the hole in the defenses. Again, these contraptions could be destroyed in a variety of exciting ways, and the covering on the cat might not be good enough to defend the people inside. You could also just drop a very heavy beam off the wall to collapse the structure. In the ancient world, I've seen some reports that there were, like, cranes that were built on city walls that would just reach down with a claw arm and grab them. In this category of putting a hole through a wall, some people would put catapult machines. But let's come back to that. The last option, uh, if going over or through the wall is not to your liking, is of course going under the wall. There's really no fancy machines here. You get some guys and you dig under the wall. At that point, you can either actually open the tunnel into the castle and storm through this brand new entrance, or you can intentionally collapse your tunnel, hopefully taking the wall down with it. This technique, called mining, was the simplest, most common, probably the most successful, though that's not saying much, and definitely the most awful siege technique used for people doing it. Mining techniques in the Middle Ages were, let's say, unlikely to beat modern health and safety standards. In the absence of electric lighting, digging was done mostly in the dark, ventilation was non-existent, and architectural techniques were rudimentary. As an added joy, the defenders were often on the lookout for mines and would attempt to make countermines, which often resulted in hand-to-hand -hand fighting in the dark, in tunnels that had been built to collapse. Nightmares. Even if everything went well, and you got away with intentionally collapsing your tunnel, there was actually no guarantee that the wall would fall with it. And as an added joy, not all castles were susceptible to mines. Some were built on solid rock, some were built in swamps. Now, in all three siege options, there are two additional things you want to do. First, you want to surround the place so that the defenders can't get more food or reinforcements. 
One would think that this was obvious, but it was actually very rarely done in the Middle Ages, just because of the small size of the armies. So there's that. Oh well. The other thing you want to do, and we discussed this a bit already, is that you want to keep pressure on the defenders by, like, shooting at them and stuff. Early in the Middle Ages, this would have been done with simple bows, but as castles got bigger, of course you needed crossbows at a minimum, as we've already discussed. But then you probably also want to go beyond that. Now, this is going to get into the weeds somewhat, but I think it's worth saying. Depending on the area, castle defenses were often not just the walls that you see now. Particularly in Northern Europe, many castles were fitted out with wooden superstructures, built high up enough that it would be difficult to set them on fire with simple bows, and they would be fitted out with at least some fireproofing material. These superstructures could be fairly simple, just consisting of roofs to keep rain off the defenders and their equipment. But they could be fairly elaborate. They could lean out over the walls, allowing uh, defenders to shoot directly downwards, which is important if people are at the base of the wall, and often they increased the height of the walls, which is useful. Now, these wooden superstructures were so successful that people in places where wooden defenses were not favored eventually came to build stone versions of them as well. Depending on the time period we're talking about, at a minimum, most castles had crenellations, those sort of square teeth-looking things that you think of on top of castles. Defenders could hide behind these things while reloading, and then they had more elaborate stone defenses like the things which allow you to shoot down. In all cases, these defenses contributed greatly to the ability of the defenders to actually prevent attackers from making a successful assault on the castle. Needless to say, reducing the ability of the defenders to molest the attackers is something that the attackers had a keen interest in doing, and yeah, this brings us back to catapult machines. The use of catapults, onagers, scorpions, ballista, trebuchets, etc., etc., dates back in various forms to the Roman Empire and beyond, and the knowledge of how to build them undoubtedly persisted in some areas around the Mediterranean through the early Middle Ages. This is not controversial. What is controversial is the role that these engines played in warfare. The popular image in movies and such is that these engines were sort of like proto-cannons that were used to actually knock down the fortifications. The historical record on this is... Not clear. They, they probably weren't... They, it's not clear. First of all, they were never used that way in the ancient world. The Romans had a ton of catapult machines and stuff. They used battering rams. The consensus amongst most military historians is that they were not used that way for most of the Middle Ages, at least, as well. Instead, the point of these engines was to wear down the defenses of the walls, either by picking off the defenders themselves, or by breaking down the crenellations, and the murder holes, and the, the wooden superstructures, and the other secondary defenses on top of the walls. This may seem like a fine detail, but it's important in understanding why castles remained central to warfare in the Middle Ages until well after the advent of gunpowder. These siege engines simply lacked the power, from an engineering perspective, to throw things with the force or accuracy needed to really damage the walls themselves, the core part of the wall. So we really shouldn't imagine an assaulting force coming up to a castle with a catapult and blasting down a hole in the wall after a few days. They just didn't have the juice. That said, they could damage or destroy the fortifications on top of the walls, and then this would make it harder for the defenders to shoot arrows or drop things on the attackers. In other words, these catapult machines could be used to give the attackers cover from the defenders and degrade the efficiency of the castle defenses. Famously, they would also be used for pleasant things like setting buildings inside the castle on fire or tossing in diseased animals or dead bodies to put more pressure on the defenders by giving them all the plague. But again, they did not attack the walls themselves. If this sounds like it's not a game changer, then yes, it wasn't. 
And for most of the Middle Ages, the presence or absence of such machines was not something that made or broke a siege on its own. Particularly since well-fortified castles and wealthy towns often incorporated their own engines of warfare into their defenses, having a catapult machine helped, it could tip the scales, but just showing up at a castle with a scorpion would not make the defenders pack it in. Now, there's a few of you out there. I just know it. Ben, you're saying. What about the counterweight trebuchet? Go on, say it. You've been to a county fair. You've shot a few pumpkins. You bought that trebuchet t-shirt. It's green. You know that castles were not so great. Not when a trebuchet rolled into town. For the rest of you, the details of what a counterweight trebuchet is are unimportant. Trebuchets were basically giant catapults that emerged fairly late in the Middle Ages and used a slightly different technology that allowed the things to shoot big ol' rocks very far and with a fair amount of accuracy. There is some documentary evidence that they really turned the tide of a few sieges. Their first use by the Mongols in China is particularly noteworthy, and one was probably a key factor in the success of the Albigensian Crusade. There may have been one at the Siege of Acre, which may have been important. There are a few reasons that I'm not convinced that they did what our t-shirt-owning friend thinks that they did. The evidence I have read from the sources doesn't suggest that they seriously degraded the structural integrity of the walls themselves, at least without help from another siege technique. They were undoubtedly more effective and efficient, there's no doubt about that, and they clearly struck fear into the hearts of the defenders. But even so, it took a long time for these things to impact the defenses of a castle, and there's still no evidence of them acting like some kind of proto-cannon blowing a hole in the wall. Even when trebuchets were deployed, the result was still, usually, a negotiated settlement. And those settlements took months to reach, and were massively expensive. To understand why, it's time to get past the details of the different siege techniques and go to the core of the issue. The people who built them, how they were built, and the logistics of keeping them running. Siege technicians are a bit spectral in the records, in some ways even more so than the infantry. While the infantry occasionally got to participate in big battles and so gained recognition as a group, the siege technicians were small in number, served almost no role in open battle, and were mostly non-noble. Often all we get in the records is just something like, a bunch of people showed up with some bits of wood and offered to help with the siege, and it was a big help. Usually it's accompanied by the christening of the siege engine with a colorful name like Bad Neighbor or The Wolf. Still, we can say a few things. First, the siege technicians had to have been educated to some degree, and they had to have had practical engineering skills. And they almost always seem to have come from urban areas. That's from the records. So we're probably talking about another group of people who were now being recruited for pay into the military rather than serving some sort of feudal obligation. They also probably signed on just for a single siege or for a single campaign rather than being kept around long term. Often their presence was not pre-planned. Often we actually hear in the chronicles that they just show up halfway through a siege and tell the Lord, So, I see you got a castle problem. Have I got an offer for you? From a logistical standpoint, the siege technician often came with teams of specialists and laborers and with some supplies, but in almost all cases, the siege engines themselves were built on site and even from scratch. This seems insane, but these machines were simply not designed for mobility, and keeping these things maintained would require expertise and funding that the lords tended not to have. Remember, the technicians went away after each campaign. Towards the end of the Middle Ages, a few kings did change things up and start keeping siege technicians on retainer, and once they did that, carting around the siege equipment disassembled between campaigns was possible. But this was a late development, and for most lords, it was simply outside of the realm of material or fiscal possibility. You hear that, trebuchet t-shirt guy? 
Each time one of these things was used, they were built on site from scratch. So right off the bat, that's like a couple weeks minimum before you even start tossing stones. The result in terms of the practicalities of siege were, as I've said multiple times, that sieges were expensive and took a really long time. The Lord had to hire or recruit infantry beforehand, which is expensive in and of itself, if there was even a chance of a siege. And then if things got really sticky, they would need to hire in one of these siege technicians. The siege technician would either lead bands of peasant laborers or bring in teams of yet more well-paid specialists and begin a whole bunch of construction. It could take weeks just to build the siege engines, and weeks more to have the engines make even an impact on the defenses. Once they did, at best, you were left with a castle with a hole in one of the walls, and at that point, the defenders can be pretty sure which way you're coming in. A siege could easily take months. Keeping in mind that the knights, who were made up the core of the army, were prone to just wandering away when they got bored, and the infantry would leave if they stopped getting paid, you can see how we end up with such a terrible success rate for sieges. So that brings us to the final subject of the episode. How were all these people paid and fed and housed? I talked a bit about the difficulties of logistics in the Middle Ages in the last episode, but let's get a little bit more to specifics. We know that the lords are cash poor and whatever, but how did this work? In the modern world, there's really only one way that we supply armies. Money is raised by an organized bureaucracy, which is used to buy food, ammunition, clothing, etc. This is stored at organized supply dumps, and then shipped in, using organized supply lines, to the place where the soldiers are. There have been a few modern experiments with other ways of supplying an army, but even the armies of Napoleon and Imperial Japan were just variations on this theme. They may have been able to plunder food and clothing, but ultimately, in the modern world, an army cannot go without supplies forever. In the past, this was less important. You know, they didn't need bullets. In the era before an industrialized army, military supplies were less important and things like food were more important. This isn't to say that medieval armies didn't need things, but most of the things that they needed could ultimately be taken from the land. And by land, I of course mean the peasantry. And so the armies of the Middle Ages would fan out across the countryside, stealing what they needed to keep body and soul together, leaving the peasantry destitute, often homeless and likely to starve next winter. It was a simpler time. The downside to this system is that the <clears throat> land only produces so much stuff in a given amount of time. This inherently limits the size of an army and the time that an army can spend in one area. As a result, throughout history, one of the main advantages of cavalry was their logistical characteristics. While they were more resource-heavy on a per-unit basis, a cavalryman can cover a lot of territory quickly, gathering more resources from the, the land while spending less time in an area overall. At the most basic level, this is part of the reason for the use of pure cavalry armies in the chevaussees of the Middle Ages. Even when armies included infantry, this technique of acquiring resources was very important. It was vital to the logistical uh, underpinnings of these armies because they didn't have anything else. Marching columns of infantry and siege technicians would be surrounded by clouds of horsemen, happily running around and acquiring resources from the, the land. You can see why the peasantry and the church were so fond of war. Anyway, there were real limits to how big you could make your army and rely on this technique, even if you kept the army in constant motion. But if you had to get involved in a siege, you would very quickly deplete the resources within easy reach. At that point, once you've depleted the supplies within the area of a castle, you could send your cavalry out further, but then you risked them being cut off and destroyed, or with your cavalry gone you wouldn't have any scouting going on, uh, and then your main army could be caught off guard by a relieving army. Something like this actually happened in the U.S. Civil War to the Confederate Army of Robert E. Lee, which led to the Battle of Gettysburg, which, I think you all know, turned out great for Lee. 
The obvious solution to the problem of extended sieges was to fall back on option one, building a logistical supply line. But as we covered last time, this proved politically and economically very difficult for lords in the Middle Ages. So that leaves option C. Option C? What's option C? Option C is the private sector, as any good libertarian with a trebuchet t-shirt could tell you. Lords would often make decrees opening formal markets in army camps with sweet deals to encourage merchants to bring supplies. And so enterprising merchants would often either follow large armies or arrive at camp afterwards with cartloads of supplies, which could be purchased for cash. Incidentally, these same merchants were often willing to buy up any loot acquired by the soldiers on campaign in return for cash, and so the merchants would buy up the stolen goods at cut rates from the soldiers and then sell the soldiers food at inflated prices. Sweet deal. In return, the merchants provided needed supplies. But not just supplies. They also brought people to perform services for the men bogged down outside the castle. Some of these services were directly important, such as washerwomen, who helped keep the army vaguely hygienic, cooks to prepare the food, various blacksmiths, leather workers, seamstresses to keep the equipment of the army in top shape. All very important. As army life in general, and sieges in particular, can often be fairly dull, entertainments and distractions were actually another fairly vital service provided by the merchants which served to keep morale high. These teams of jugglers, minstrels, actors, and dancers kept the men entertained and enlivened camp life. Of course, vice has also always been inseparable from military life, and so these entertainments also included gambling, dancing girls, and prostitutes. The powers that were were of course appalled by these carryings on. In an era when victory or loss in battle was thought to be an expression of God's will, many commanders thought that the presence of such moral pollution undermined their chances of winning. More practically, having their men lose all their money gambling and then contracting a venereal disease was probably not great for efficiency or morale in the long term. Still, the point is that the merchants would keep the army in wine, women, and bread. The army got supplied, the merchants made money, win-win. Who needs a fancy, centrally controlled logistical system anyway, am I right? The laws of supply and demand will take care of everything. See, we can learn from the Middle Ages. Let's privatize all the Pentagon supply chains. Come on, guys! Well, hold on there, Ayn Rand. Keep your trebuchet t-shirt on. There's some pretty basic reasons we don't do this anymore. The first issue is that this system has no predictability, and predictability is something that you need when you're leading a large group of professional killers on a walk through the countryside. The merchants showed up when they thought that there was money to be made selling to the army. That's fine, except that your supply chain is not in your control in this situation. If you go somewhere and the merchants don't want to go there, you may end up there with no supplies. And they may not tell you that beforehand. Even if the merchants are willing to work with you, you can't make sure that the supplies are going to be in the right place at the right time. And then you can't guard it. Nothing. Your ability to eat and make sure that these bunch of people don't kill you are dependent on someone else's business sense. And if supplies aren't in the right place at the right time, then your army full of well-armed men may wander off or, worse, start looking at you and seeing a giant cartoon ham, steam gently wafting from its crisp, diamond-cut skin, studded with pineapples and cherries. There weren't pineapples in the... Anyway. On a related note, if you want merchants to show up, you would need to broadcast as widely as possible to the merchants where they should show up and why, or risk having them not show up at all, which, ham. Of course, if you're telling every merchant within your postal district who will listen to show up in front of Duchess Raven's castle next month with a boatload of military supplies, Duchess Raven may begin to wonder why. She might make sure her guards are all awake that week and stock the swamp around her castle with all her pet mosquitoes. 
In all seriousness, the idea of operational security was basically non-existent in the Middle Ages. Yet another thing on the list of 700 reasons why wars in the Middle Ages didn't achieve anything. Of course, one of the more pernicious things about this system from a soldier's point of view is that the people paying for all this food and entertainment? Well, at the end of the day, it was the soldiers themselves. We take it for granted today that soldiers in the field are guaranteed a minimum level of free food as part of the deal. As a society, we may not agree on their pensions and health benefits, but this is one sacred cow that no one questions. This was not the case in the Middle Ages. Even for the knights showing up to discharge their feudal obligations, men who were sort of not being paid at all because they had already been paid in land, well, they were expected to show up with their own supplies for the march. They were expected to get more for themselves as they went. Now, the system of mutual feudal obligation means that we need to caveat this grim picture somewhat. Superiors in the military were expected to ensure that their men were well cared for by divvying up spoils from raiding, and lords would hold feasts for their inner circles, and over time it came to be recognized that some compensation was required to keep the army together, even for the knights. But by and large, the systems established were ad hoc and informal, at best, and relied heavily on mid-ranking officers of the army to pay for food from their own pockets. Despite the efforts of these men, it still seems that much of the food procured by the army was procured by the individual soldiers, at least when it came to buying from the merchants. And this was done based on their own resources, often drawing on the recruitment bonuses they received up front at the start of the campaign. This of course made morale fairly brittle in all ranks of the army, especially when things started to get bogged down. Troops marched in high hopes of financial reward at the beginning of a campaign, hopes that were reinforced when the army was flush with raided loot and signing bonuses. But once a siege started, and assuming the merchants showed up, this feeling would sour as the men were forced to spend their own money on supplies, and that's assuming they didn't fritter it all away on gambling and women. If it started to look like the siege would go on too long, or like it would be unsuccessful, people would often begin to slip off. We might view this as dereliction of duty, and you know, there were some at the time who viewed it that way, but for many of the soldiers, this was simple fiscal necessity. More than a few campaigns that started out full of promise ended with the knights just slipping out the back, trying to figure out how to pay off their debts to the merchants and nursing a mysterious illness beneath their folds. So no, trebuchet t-shirt man. Privatizing the supply chain of an army is a bad plan. To be sure, the U.S. military has privatized some elements of their supply chain in recent years. I'm not an expert in whether this was a good financial decision or not, but hey, I'll give them a be the benefit of the doubt and say that maybe they saved some money. What I can tell you is that they have not gone as far as requiring soldiers to pay for their own supplies and from their own salaries, because that is just madness from a morale standpoint, and they have not surrendered overall control of the supply chain because that is military suicide. Just ask the soldiers of the Middle Ages. Now's the point where I have to say that the people in the Middle Ages weren't dumb. This... It's just sort of a system that evolved, but there's reasons we don't do this anymore. This brings us to one last point before we leave the discussion of war behind for a while. So, war was highly unpleasant, chances of success were low, and the main result of war was leaving much of the nobility in debt and the peasantry on the edge of a suicidal rage. Why did people keep going to war, despite all the clear reasons to stay home? Well, first off, a lot of them did stay home. It was an increasing problem for the lords and kings who were trying to create armies in the Middle Ages that a lot of the nobles would just not. But for those who did, there were potential rewards. A successful campaign could net a soldier a tidy profit, and a really successful one could propel a huge amount of social mobility. Commoners could be knighted. Poor knights might resolve their debts for a generation. The lords might get just enough new resources to finally secure their position against their neighbors. 
Were the risks catastrophic? Absolutely. And everyone knew it. They weren't idiots. But without any ability to really determine the statistical chances of success, or even have a concept of statistical chance, the soldiers and lords of the Middle Ages relied on stories to determine their chances of success. And their culture was full of stories of military success. They also heard stories of failure, and many nobles simply did what they could to stay home. But for many, I think the optimistic bias so central to the human condition asserted itself. They were willing to risk failure for the chance of success. Certainly, some had more of a reason to take that risk. People who were less fiscally secure, for example. But ultimately, there were a lot of people who just were, we might say, romantic. They were willing to get take the risk, get some adventure, and maybe get that big reward. You don't win unless you play, after all. This itself is one of my most surprising and lasting takeaways from studying warfare in the Middle Ages for a couple decades now. It's so easy to focus on the stories you want to hear and ignore the ones you don't that we must all always be on the lookout for optimistic biases in our own lives. Sure, in our day and age, we may not end up sitting in a swamp outside of Pavia eating rats and suffering from malaria, but there are failed sieges waiting to trap all of us in our lives if we aren't careful about what evidence we use to make our decisions. Today we looked at the kinds of people involved in warfare in the Middle Ages. From the cavalry, noble and non-noble, to the infantry, who were increasingly recruited from the non-noble urban classes, and who were organizing themselves into professional groupings. We also met the siege technicians, who were probably also recruited from the urban classes, and the merchants, who ran the supply chain and helped bring camp followers to liven up the army camps of the Middle Ages. Of course, the highly privatized supply chains that they ran were horrible for military efficiency, but at least they left everybody in a crushing amount of debt. Except the merchants, of course. In the next regular episode, we will finally turn away from warfare and the nobility, and begin to look at the life of normal people in some depth. I'm thinking there will be two episodes at least on the life of the non-noble classes in the Middle Ages. Given what happened with this last few, probably expect three. And then that will be followed by an episode or two on the economic history of the era. Before we get there, however, I have a special bonus episode, which should be dropping this month, as a thanks for all your support. Until then, thanks for listening to Whitberg to Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.